0: Good morning, gents. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all the rest. I hope you had a great time. Someone said to me this morning, you know, school's hardly started. We're starting up." Amen. I don't know. I don't know how we got started on January the third, but sure, I'm glad that you're here. Sure, and I'm, I'm gonna miss this old place, you know. When we move next month back to Fellowship Hall, you know, place it's big where you can't hear, and uh, yeah, it's just gonna be. Gonna, I'm gonna really be homesick for this nice room we've got. If you can't hear today, then raise your hand. Of course, the problem is, if you can't hear, you didn't hear what I just said, so you won't be able to raise your hand either. But if you'll just raise your hand throughout the uh, time, if you can't hear well, I, I promise I won't call on you. Uh, I'll take it as a note that you either want me to slow down my speech or get closer to the mic or something else. Uh, we'll, we'll make the best of it these next two or three weeks while we're in here. Gentlemen, we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. And I thought I had arranged to be out of town on this text. Uh, I usually do when it comes to these women texts. You know, you get get in all kinds of trouble when you're talking about wives submitting to their husbands, because I've noticed that some of your wives get these tapes. And uh, I usually do arrange to be out of town. It's not because I'm I'm afraid of women. Uh, It's because I'm afraid of myself. we all have different backgrounds. You know, we all have different fathers and different mothers, and we're all biased by our own rearing, and including myself. And it's it's a difficult task when you're trying to understand what the Bible says and you're looking at it from your own grid and trying to have the Bible even speak to your own your own grid so that you become a, a faithful exegete of what the Scriptures is actually saying. And then when you mess up, boy, you really mess up. You, get, you have somebody mad at you. And I don't want to make anybody mad, but more than anything, I just don't want to miss what the word is actually saying. And we're going to do our best this morning. I'm going to do my best, and I know you will too, in studying this text to figure out what it means and how we apply it in our own day. And uh, we want fear because actually in verse 6, in speaking of the women, uh, Peter says, Like Sarah, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So let's not give way to fear. Let's, let's study the word and really try to put it in, into practice. Well, to that end, let's, uh, let's read the text. This is 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. You remember the context. If you back up all the way to chapter 2, verse 11, after Peter has described how we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, he says that we are the people who are supposed to be living as aliens and strangers in the world uh, so that we can live such good lives among the pagans that uh, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's the calling, that we're to be agents of Christ out in this world, living such lives that people will glorify God through, through knowing us and observing our lives. And then he begins in verse 13 with this whole concept of submission. And we saw how difficult submission is for men. Now, we're going to talk about submission uh, of wives here for a few minutes, But we've already seen how difficult the whole concept of submission is. None of us likes to submit by nature, by our fallen nature. But we've seen how important it is for us to demonstrate Christ in this world. So whether it's the workplace or government or church or family, wherever it is we are supposed to submit, we are supposed to be experts at it because we are demonstrating Christ who was exquisitely submissive to his Father and even to human authorities, uh, even oppressive human authorities on the earth, as we see in his interviews before Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and so on. So we're imitating Christ, and therefore we could even talk about first century slavery uh, in verses 18 following. Uh, Once again, an institution that was undermined by the New Testament ultimately, uh, an institution of men. But yet, it was a household institution because, as we saw, the economy was built on the household. And so even there, where we know there were many excesses and abuses and, and so on, uh, we, we as Christians are encouraged to submit to the authority before us. Now we come to Chapter 3. We're still in this whole idea of submission. And wherever there are relationships where submission is involved, uh, we are to submit. Obviously, we'll have our uh, special... A view of this as men this morning as we look at verses 1 through 7 and we'll look at it through the lens uh, uh, the male lens uh, because we're all men if we were a mixed group uh, we would speak of this a little differently perhaps and focus on some other things but we're going to focus on this text as men let's look at it now 3 1 through 7 wives in the same way be submissive to your husband's So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, Which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. And treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gifts of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Amen. Okay, first of all, in these first six verses, Peter is teaching that wives must submit to their husbands. Okay, let's close in prayer. Uh, yeah, I can hear some amens and amen Bible study. Finally, finally. Well, this word, uh, submit or be submissive, it comes from the same root word as all the other words for submit, whether it's in the workplace in verse 18 or whether it had to do with uh, submitting to uh, governmental authorities in verses 13 and following. And Peter is simply saying to the wives, there is a relationship here in the home with your husband where we are to submit. And obviously, the marital relationship is a unique relationship. Uh, And it's unique in a number of ways. It is unique uh, in one sense because uh, if you take, for example, the household rule of children uh, obeying their parents, there you do not have the uh, partnership. Uh, Children are not our partners. Uh, They are our descendants, and they are our subordinates in every way. Uh, But when he says wives submit to your husbands, here you have a partnership. You have people who are equal to each other, who are both adults, And who are shoulder to shoulder. There's not another relationship like it where authority exists in the relationship. If you look at the governmental relationship, the judge is sitting on the bench. We're down here on the floor in the dock answering to the judge. He's up. We're down. We're not partners. He's in charge. Marriage is different. We have two partners. So it's a nuanced relationship of mutual service and submission so when we talk about submission in marriage it gets really tricky because you have to be sure you do not undermine the equality and the partnership the shoulder-to-shoulder relationship that is involved in marriage and before we even look at the text i'd like for us to consider some questions and you see these printed out in your handout first of all is this marital submission mutual in other words Sometimes we'll say there's mutual submission. The, woman submits, the wife submits to the husband, but the husband also submits to the wife. Now, where we get this sometimes, if you'll leave your finger in 1 Peter, turn back to Ephesians 5, and uh, here the Apostle Paul is speaking about submission. It's the household code again, and he also speaks of wives and slaves to masters, and he speaks here of children and parents. This is on page 1911. And if you look at Ephesians 5, 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of fear of Christ. And so some scholars will say, you see, he's saying, submit to one another. That is, each of us submits mutually. And there's no difference between the wife submitting to the husband and the husband submitting to the wife. I'd like to suggest, though, that if you look at the text carefully, even though the NIV puts 21, with, the, with you know, the, the conclusion to the previous paragraph, uh, it serves both purposes. It does conclude the previous paragraph, but it also is a swing verse, and it introduces the next paragraph. Because in verse 22, where the NIV reads, wives submit to your husbands, what it says literally is, wives to your husbands. So in other words, verse 21 is the introductory verse. Let's show how we're going to submit to one another. Let's show where submission comes into the Christian life. And he says, first of all, wives to your husbands. And then you'll, you'll see that he picks up in verse uh, 25 the instructions for the husband. Love your wives. And then in verse 6-1, children obey your parents. And then in verse 6-5, slaves obey your earthly masters. I would suggest to you that, that, the mutual, uh, that, that the mutual submission is really not what Paul has in mind here. Paul has in mind that in Ephesians 5, wherever submission is due, be sure and render it. And he gives three relationships as examples of where submission is due. So the concept of mutual submission out of 521, I think, is actually a misread of the intention of the text itself. However, there is a mutual submission in marriage. Even John Calvin in the 16th century speaks of this on this text. But he's saying, Calvin also says, just as parents sometimes submit to their children. So when Calvin speaks of a mutual submission, he's speaking about how we defer to one another. And sometimes the boss defers to his subordinates in the workplace. If he's a good boss, of course he does. He does it hour after hour after hour where he's deferring to the the desires and the needs of those uh, who are under his charge. Uh, So Calvin doesn't didn't mean in the 16th century, the sort of first century uh, or 21st century egalitarianism that is meant by us when we speak of mutual submission. Calvin was not speaking of an egalitarianism, and I don't think the text is. So there is a mutual submission. It's a mutual deference. But that does not remove the issue of authority that you have to deal with. We'll get to that in a few moments. Secondly, was Peter recommending submission to husbands as a lasting ordinance? Or was he teaching, as in the case with slavery, that the subordinate should submit only because it was a recognized human authority structure in his own day? Now notice in verse 18 of chapter 2, that the Apostle Paul does recommend submission in an authority structure that he also undermines by or that the Apostle Paul undermines by his own teaching. So in other words, slavery was a human institution. In fact, it was an evil human institution. And Paul and Peter do recommend and do teach submission to due authority even in an evil institution. But the question is, is this one of those institutions or is it one that is ordained by God? In other words, is this authority an evil human institution that we've just received through tradition as a patriarchal society, or is this order actually taught as divinely given in the Scriptures? Now, for example, government, we are taught in verse 13 and following, is a divine institution, divinely ordained institution. It is not by nature evil. We've made it evil, but it is not by nature evil. It is given to us even in the Garden of Eden. We have the institution of human government. Similarly, I suggest that we look at marriage the same way. It is a divine institution. It's not an evil human creation. It's given to us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 as a divinely given uh, ordained institution. Therefore, I would suggest the answer to number two is that he was recommending it as a lasting ordinance. And in that divinely given institution, as we can see from the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was an authority structure of sorts that is, once again, unique to marriage. It's not like other authority structures because we are equal partners. And some will say then, how can you say that husbands and wives are equal if one has authority over the other? Well, actually, theologically, that's a fairly easy question to answer because all one has to do is look at the trinity. Is the Father equal to the Son and the Son equal to the Father? Of course. They are co equal, co-glorious, co powerful. Does the Son submit to the Father? Yes, of course. Voluntarily. Of his own will. He says it is you know that it is my meat to do the Father's will. He came to accomplish the Father's will. He submitted to the Father voluntarily, in a beautiful way. Did that in any way Remove his equal status with the Father in the Trinity? Of course not. So we see in the Trinity itself that at least theoretically it's possible that you can have a relationship where submission is inherent and where both parties are equal in every way. And so I recommend that to you as a thought when it comes to marriage because that seems to be exactly what is being taught by the apostles. We'll look at some other texts in a moment. Thirdly, since Peter was concerned that the Christians not scandalize outsiders by overthrowing recognized, even patriarchal authority, wouldn't it be accurate to say that we would best avoid public scandal by not teaching wives to submit to their husbands? In other words, here's, here's the question. Isn't it true here? If you look at verse 1, Paul is speaking to wives who have disobedient or unbelieving husbands, either Christians who are being inconsistent in their walk, or more likely, pagans who were not Christians at all. And he's teaching the Christian wives to submit to pagan husbands. And the reason is, as we shall see, that they may win them. Peter wants to be sure that the women's testimony is clear and distinct and winsome and draws people to Jesus Christ. And in many cases you'll find in the New Testament that the apostles teach us not unnecessarily to scandalize our surrounding environment. Uh, there, there would be examples of, of this. And perhaps even the issue of slavery was one of them. If you overthrew the issue of household slavery in the first century, you would have thrown many women on the streets to prostitution. So it, there was an evolutionary dissolving of the institution of slavery. The same would be true of polygamy. You notice that the way the Apostle Paul deals with polygamy is not to say to all the men, get rid of all your wives but one. No, he says it this way. You officers, elders and deacons, must be the husbands of but one wife. In other words, you must be monogamous. If you're going to be married, only one. And by teaching that the officers are monogamous, through the generations the church became monogamous. And that was the way not to throw women out on the street. So there are gradual sort of evolutionary tactics that are used in the scriptures at times. And the question is, is this teaching one of those? In other words, since it was a patriarchal society and Peter did not want the Christians to appear as a bunch of of fruitcakes and nutty revolutionaries who were overthrowing the the institutional order of the home, which was the constituent element of society itself, isn't it reasonable then to say that's the thrust of his teaching? He says it here. Be winsome. So don't, don't overthrow the recognized natural order that is around you. Therefore, wives, be submissive to your husbands. That's the question. And so then if you apply that same teaching in our own day, isn't it true that the natural ethos in which we're living is increasingly an egalitarian one? And therefore, shouldn't we as believers, not to scandalize the unbelievers around us, that we may be more winsome, shouldn't we be actually saying, wives, you don't need to be submissive to your husbands any more than they need to be submissive to you. Or rather, wives, be submissive to your husbands in the same way that your husbands should be submissive to you. Isn't that what we should be saying? If we're consistent with Peter's strategy. Well, it's a, it's a great question. And it's certainly... Uh, Somebody ought to answer this. (laughs) Well, I want to start by saying that I I think there are many things that we want to overthrow. Uh, At least in my childhood, I grew up in the 50s. And there's some things about the traditional sort of patriarchal home and society that I am not in any way eager to return to. There was an oppressive authoritarianism. There was a home that was often led simply by the male ego of the father and the husband. There were inequities in the marketplace. There were prejudices against women in society, and there were strong prejudices against women's leadership in the church. And I have no desire to go back to that at all. There were unreported abuse cases, uh, spousal abuse cases, child abuse cases, including uh, daughters especially in some ways. Uh, we do not want to go back to that. And unfortunately, many people who, who were at one time, on one hand, teaching that there was a legitimate submission of a wife to a husband were also saying, on the other hand, they want to hold on to the traditional family. Well, I don't want the traditional family if that's what it means at all. Uh, there are tremendous issues of gender justice that are even now not quite worked out, but that are on their way, and I thank God for it. At the same time, uh, it is true that uh, what we want to do is to look at what the, the Apostle's strategy actually was and whether he indeed intended anything to be transcultural here. And I'd like to say that uh, when I look at the Apostles and they're dealing with all kinds of issues, I don't find them slow at all to take on the culture when they needed to. For example, uh, women were considered to be less to be inferior to men in the first century. I think any scholar would, would say that. Uh, they were considered not only to be physically weaker, but intellectually weaker. They were driven by their emotions, men were driven by their minds and their intellect, which we know now not to be the case at all. In fact, women I believe physicians, isn't it true, women actually have larger brains than men do on the average. That explains a lot. Uh, so, we we know that the Biases and prejudices of the first century were not correct, but regardless of that, Peter and Paul built their gender theology or built their gender teachings based on theology. And you'll find it in verse 7. We're co-heirs. We're equal heirs, husband and wives. You'll find it with the Apostle Paul that there is no more male nor female, he says in Galatians 3.28. When it comes to the The salvation of God through Jesus Christ by grace, we are all on the same footing. When it comes to God's pleasure in us, he takes delight equally in men and women. And so there is no distinction uh, in any way uh, in terms of God's favor toward us or in terms of our importance or our abilities overall. So in that sense, uh, the apostles were very clear to be countercultural. This was countercultural. It was a form of apostolic egalitarianism, if I could use that word. I don't mean that in the 21st century way. I mean it in the 1st century way. There was an equalitarianism, an egalitarianism that was taught by the apostles and exercised by our Lord Jesus Christ. He had women in His troop. And rabbis didn't do that. Jesus was very radically pro-female. The apostles were radically pro-female. And they were not slow to say so. And they were not slow to practice it. Paul was, was a, a co-teacher with Priscilla. He was a co-leader with Phoebe. There were many very strong women in the New Testament. So when we look at the New Testament, we are actually looking at a radically... Uh, once again, let me use this word carefully. Uh, I would say feminist, but it has too many 20, 20th century and 21st century too much baggage with it. But they were very pro-female. So you have to start there. The apostles were not afraid to be pro-female. They were not afraid to overthrow anything that was evil. Paul overthrew slavery in, in his letter to Philemon. Clearly. He wasn't afraid of it, even though it was one of the most radical uh, charters ever written about slavery, uh, anti-slavery. So you have to start with that mentality and realize that if Peter and Paul then root the marriage relationship in creation, if they root it in the person of Jesus Christ and his authority, then they're doing that intentionally. They're building a theological model. Now, in the case of First Peter, you have Peter clearly showing how the submission of the wife is related to demonstrating the submission of Jesus Christ. That's his theological model. It has to do with the submission and the sufferings of Christ. And the main thing Peter wants to have happen is for Christ to be displayed to a watching world. So that's his chief motive. It's not just getting along with society or as some scholars suggest Peter wants that Asian church to survive by not being persecuted. Therefore, don't overthrow the patriarchal structures of your own day. That's not Peter's driving concern. He's aware of it. The driving concern is to imitate Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at Ephesians, the driving concern is that the marriage imitate the relationship between Christ and the church. And he says, husbands, love your wives, tenderly care for them, present them without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, because this is the way Christ is dealing with you and you're the bride. So imitate Christ by nurturing and caring for and forgiving your wife just as he's forgiven you. Wives, you're playing this. This is your script. Your script is the church. Play the role. And this is the purpose of marriage. is to demonstrate the union in covenant between Christ and the church. He's made covenant with us. That's the reason the Lord says I've given you covenant in marriage so that you can play out your script. So that you can display the glories of the mystery of Christ and the church. When you turn to 1 Corinthians 11 you find once again some male female teaching and he says you know that we're interdependent we're not separate from one another man comes from woman woman also comes from man but at the same time he says that that Christ is head over every man and man is head over the woman and he's showing a theological model that comes from creation likewise in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he speaks about the order in the church, and how he says, "I forbid that a woman should teach a man or have authority over a man." He makes an argument from creation, among other things. So what you find in the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter is they're, they're rooting their ultimate arguments in transtemporal, transcultural realities. These are theological arguments, not just pragmatic arguments in how to get along in today's culture. I hope this is making some sense. It does to me. I'm just not sure I'm communicating it. But you'll you'll see in Peter and Paul that there's something more deeply rooted in their arguments than just pragmatic getting along, pragmatically getting along with folks. Now look at number four. What does the rest of the New Testament have to say about this? Well, we've already referred to it, and you see in Ephesians 5:20 uh, 20 and 22, wives submit to your husbands, or literally wives to your husbands. In Colossians 3, you get the same thing. It says in verse 18 of Colossians 3 wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord in Titus 2 4 and 5 uh, you get a similar statement where the Apostle Paul says uh, the older women can train the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure to be busy at home to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God so uh, actually, there's not just an isolated text. There are about four or five texts that are consistently teaching the same thing. So we've got to deal with this, not as just a cultural phenomenon of the first century, but something that seems to be communicated to us as a transtemporal, transcultural uh, idea. Is this submission qualified in any way? Yes, of course it is. All of our submission is always in the Lord. And the submission that a wife renders to a husband is in the Lord. That means she worships and serves the Lord, not her husband, first of all. And there are cases, especially when a wife is married to an unbelieving husband, but certainly cases when she's married to a disobedient Christian husband where she has to disobey her husband. If her husband doesn't want to go to church... I've heard some wives say, you know, I don't want to upset my husband, so I stay at home. Pastor, I'm sure you will understand that. Yes, I understand that. I understand that as disobedience on your part. Because you must be willing to provoke the wrath of your husband or any other thing that you might suffer in order to worship the Lord. And you don't make compromises with the Lord in order to please your husband. You can only compromise if it's in the Lord. So a, a woman must first of all get her eyes set on the Lord. You find in, in fact in verse 6 when uh, Peter is talking about Sarah, he says you're her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Don't give way to the human fear. Don't give way to seeking the praise of human beings. What makes a woman beautiful is that she has her eyes set firmly on Jesus Christ. She's determined to serve Him. And there's a radiance and a beauty and a femininity that glows uh, out of that sort of commitment to Christ That, that uh, unconditioned commitment to Christ So of course it's qualified And she must be willing to serve the Lord Regardless of her marriage In most cases serving the Lord Will help her immensely in her marriage But there are times when serving the Lord Will make a husband angry And you must be willing to lose your life To serve the Lord Including your marriage So These are some of the qualifying statements uh, I would want us to consider before we even begin to look at this text and why that uh, we are looking at it from the angle of a true submission that is unique to marriage, but also unique to the wife vis-a-vis the husband. Now let's look at the text in more detail. First of all, uh, we see that wives must submit to their husbands uh, because disobedient husbands will be one, there is a reality here that if wives will submit to their husbands, the husbands will be one. It's an attractive thing. Husbands have egos. That makes no excuse for them. But wise women know that probably the greatest need of any man is to be respected. And men won't tell you that because of their ego. And they certainly won't want to admit that a wife has that much influence over them. Or that a wife can devastate them. He doesn't want to admit that his ego is that weak. I tell women all the time, look, men have big egos. And the mistake you make is thinking that big means strong. Men have big, fragile egos. And they all need their mama. (laughs) They all do. And, you know, tell me, if you've been on the battlefield and your friend was dying next to you, did he call out for his daddy? No, with his last breath, they'll call out for his mama, these 20-year-olds who are dying in Iwo Jima. They're calling out for their mama. And, you know, usually we don't admit this in public. I know I'm a sissy for even saying it in public, but it's true. And men want to be respected by their wives. Now, the reason I'm saying this to you is to get it out on the table because that has a lot to do with the way that you misuse this text. Because your ego is big and very demanding. You're high maintenance when it comes to ego issues. And therefore, you and I distort this text and use it to oppress wives instead of to serve them. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, it is a way to win the husbands. And you win them without a word. One over without words. Do I hear an amen hallelujah? All right. Men are impressed by behavior, not words. I hear husbands say all the time, could you just cut the word count down a little bit? You know, Lots of words. Man alive. No nagging. And I always tell wives, you know where the nag line is. You can see it in his body language. And when you hit the nag line, you stop. When it comes to spiritual matters, you do not go beyond the nag line. Now, she may go beyond the nag line on carrying out the trash. That's between you and her. But when it comes to spiritual matters, you win them without a word. Now, if the husband says, you know, honey, I really appreciate your spiritual life and I'd like to learn from you, now there's a mature man. And now a woman has freedom to be herself and to engage spiritual issues and even to encourage and exhort her husband. But the husband needs to open the door to that. And I suggest you go home and open the door to your wife because many times they are more spiritually minded than we are. When and without words, by behavior, by the behavior of their wives, when they see your pure conduct in fear, literally. Pure conduct in fear. That means purity and reverence. When they see your fear of God, fear is always directed toward God. Pagans taught that wives should worship their husbands' gods. The apostles taught that you only worship the true and the living God, no matter what including wives, so they have a pure conduct in the fear of God. And, you know, this is kind of a southern thing. Uh, You know, in in centuries past, southern men always got their righteousness because they married it. Uh, You know, and then we had an excuse to live like the devil. Uh, We always took great pride in the righteousness of our wives. Of course, that's a huge distortion of what God intended. The reality of what God intended was that we would both marry righteous people but that we would take great delight in the purity of our wives and we would defend their purity and we would encourage their purity and it would be the essence of their beauty. Notice also that wives submit to their husbands, not only because husbands are best won this way, but because beauty is best displayed this way. Not from natural adornment. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Now, gentlemen, if you think this means no more hairdos, or hair appointments, no more jewelry, no more fine clothes you're going to buy for them, then think again. He is not saying no braided hair at all, no gold jewelry at all, no fine clothes at all. The reason we know this is that when it, the, the word fine clothes literally just says the putting on of garments. Peter is not saying go around naked. Don't put on garments. No, he's saying that you do not derive your beauty ultimately from the things that you wear. Or the things that you own. It's not an outward idea. It's an inward idea. This is the main thing he's saying. So of course we love to decorate our wives. Of course we love to make them happy in all kinds of ways. But it is their job not to see themselves primarily as a Christmas tree on which you hang ornaments. But rather as someone who is developing from the inside out. Instead, he says, it should be that of your inner self. Your inner self. This is where beauty comes from. Uh, anybody who's really thought about it, if you think about the essence of femininity, what is the essence of femininity? What's the biggest determining factor in a woman being really feminine? It's what she thinks of herself. It is what she thinks of herself. And if she thinks of herself as a beloved child of God, free from condemnation, full of His Spirit enjoying serving him and her neighbor, she radiates femininity. If she enjoys being a woman, with all that that entails, it communicates there's an an aroma that just fills the room with a woman who's that way. Now, what contribution can you make to this? Well, let me start with your daughters. How many of you have daughters? Great. No matter what age, let me tell you, especially before they're married, you are the key communicator of that idea. And unfortunately, in a materialistic suburb like the ones that most of you live in, most of us live in, we think a lot about outward adornments. We think about the cars we drive and the ties we wear and the offices in which we sit and the buildings in which we work. We think about all the accoutrements of our adornments. And then when we look at our daughters, we're thinking about their shape and what they wear and the friends they hang out with. And you don't have to say it. Because when they come home and you ask them what they've been doing, you ask them why they do this, that, or the other, all your questions, all your concerns have to do with their outward appearances and their outward adornments. As though they they weren't flooded with this by the media. And in constant condemnation of their own bodies and the way that they appear. If we had any idea of the self-condemnation of a 14-year-old, we'd never say again anything about the way they look because they're flooded with it by the media and by the culture. And fathers sometimes are enormously insensitive to this because we too are thinking about the outward adornment. We're thinking about their college degrees. We're thinking about the man they marry. We're thinking about how they look. All these things, and we communicate it non-verbally and verbally as well. If you want your daughter to be a beautiful young woman, then you will focus in on her inner beauty. You will focus in upon her soul. And you will have conversations with her about her relationship with Christ and how she's dealing with certain things that are in her own culture and society, in school or wherever she is. And you are the key one that mirrors to her what beauty is. Because with a woman... It's not the great tasks that she performs and the victories that she wins. It's the relationship that she has with the key man in her life. Generally, it's the man. And so the father relationship is absolutely essential to her own self-assessment. So she must see in your eyes that you behold the beauty that is in her heart. And then she begins to cherish the beauty that's in her heart. And that is the way she begins to define herself. Now, I'm not cutting any slack for her. She has her own duty to learn what real beauty is. And she must be taught that. She must learn it herself. I'm only speaking about your influence on it. When you look at a text like this, you see what real feminine beauty is. And when you spend all your time on pornography and gawking at women with large breasts, and your daughter is sitting there observing all this, what do you think she thinks about what real beauty is? She's learning it from you about what feminine beauty is. So it is our task as men on the earth to define in the presence of God and on His behalf to define feminine beauty according to what He defines in the Scriptures. So this is going to take a radical change for most of us in our minds. But with your daughters, you are the ones who encourage them and exhort them and remind them of the real beauty that they have. And you tell them what? What is beautiful and why they're beautiful? You define it for them. Now, that doesn't mean you don't say, honey, that's a beautiful dress. You look great in that. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. In fact, Those comments need to be made because they, they do have outward beauty. As we've seen, he's not saying no braided hair at all, no gold jewelry at all, no clothes at all. And I delight to take, take my daughters to the store and buy clothes for them. That's a wonderful thing to do. I'm talking about where your real ultimate concerns are with your daughter. It comes through. And it does with your wife as well. Her beauty is her inner soul. And if you want to communicate as the key man in her life where the beauty is, you will begin taking delight in those things about her and feed those things back to her so that she can see just as in a mirror. The beauty that she really has before God. This is how it affects, I think, the men who are in this room. You're not from natural adornment, but from the inner self. The unfading, that is the incorruptible beauty. He uses that word incorruptible in chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 23. Same word. That incorruptible beauty. Gold, although it seems to be forever, and diamonds seem to be forever, they're not. Even they are corruptible. One day everything will, will fade away. The beauty that is in the inner soul will not fade away. It will only grow. It's incorruptible beauty. And it is the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That word gentle is the the word meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Same word. Or when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle, I am meek, and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. The Lord is meek. So what is beautiful is what is of the Lord in her. And she will pick up on this when you pick up on it. Most of the time the women are striving after the things by which they adorn themselves because that's what you gawk at. That's what gets your attention. And in some ways the males are defining female beauty. And I don't find the church doing much better at it than the world. This needs to change. And then it's costly. That is, it is of great worth in God's sight. And a woman must learn, and we must help them learn, that what is really costly and valuable is what is most valuable to the Lord Himself. And then the Apostle Peter says, not only will men, your husbands, be one, and not only will uh, you display true beauty, but you will follow and emulate the examples of godly women of the past. And basically he's saying to them, fall in line. Get behind the godly women of the past like Sarah. And what did they do? First of all, they hoped in God. They were confident in God's reward. I had a woman come to me one time and complaining about her husband. And frankly, she had a lot to complain about. And she wanted to divorce her husband. Frankly, I didn't blame her. I I had no idea how she survived being married to the man she was married to. Now, he, he was a believer. and He was a regular worshiper. So, I mean, he was a genuine Christian. Just very difficult to live with. Very insecure. Just, I could go on and on. I mean, I I deeply sympathized with the woman. So she was telling me her concerns, and I said to her, I'll call her Barbara. I said, Barbara, you know, uh, I'm I'm sorry that you're struggling so much in your marriage. I didn't tell her how much I sympathized with with her on these other grounds. That wouldn't have helped. But I said, I'm really sorry that you're you're struggling in your marriage. I said, you know, One way to look at this is that um, this marriage is is temporary. She said, really? And I said, yeah, I said, it it really doesn't last very long. Really? I said, yeah, it, it only lasts as long as you live. She said, oh. And that's true. Marriage lasts only as long as you live. And that's not a very long time. And it is the secularist who believes it is the unbelieving saccharist who believes he must grab for all the gusto he can because you only go around once and you've got to get it in this life. If you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, your time span grows, not exponentially, it grows infinitely, which means this time span has a very limited purpose, which is to glorify God, and we get through it pretty quickly. And the older ones of you here know how quickly it goes. And we are simply to live it out. They hoped in God. And there's a big difference between having a happy marriage and being a faithful wife. And there's a big difference between having a great marriage and being a faithful husband. And I suggest to you and to me, let's get our eyes on what we can control. And you cannot make a happy marriage. You can make a faithful and loving husband. So let's get on with business. And Let's do what we're supposed to do. So define your perspective. They put their hope in God. They didn't have to have happy marriages. All they had to have was the pleasure of Jesus Christ. They submitted to imperfect husbands. Notice that he says, wives, submit to your husbands so that though they're unbelieving and disobedient, they may be one without a word. And gentlemen, when it comes to our business to be considerate with our wives, it is not conditioned on having a tender, loving, beautiful wife. It is unconditional, just as it is with them. They acted rightly and fearlessly. You or her daughters, if you do what is right, do not give way to fear. Don't let anything throw you off track. Now, so what? First of all, it is not our duty to make our wives submit. Please get this. This is not your job. It's my job. I'm the official harasser. I'm the teacher. I'm the preacher. If some woman gets a hold of this tape, great. She can get send me all the emails she wants to, and she and I will go back and forth on it. It's not your job to make her submit. This is her mail, not yours. Why are you reading her mail? You're only reading because of the Word of God. Well, you know what the Lord's telling her. But He says, wives! He doesn't say, husbands, let me tell you about your wives. He says, no, wives, let me tell you about you. He's talking to wives. We're listening in on a conversation that's going to somebody else. And it has to do with her righteousness. It has to do with her relationship with the Lord. It doesn't have to do with your relationship with the Lord. And your devotion to her, your devotion, Submission to her preferences and her desires is unconditioned on whether she submits to you or not. And you cannot say, God really love you and be considerate of you if you'd only show me a little respect. That is BS. And I have a stronger word for it, but I won't use it here because it's on tape and women listen to it. But that's what it is. It's complete manure. It's a cop-out. Our love and tenderness with our wives has nothing to do with whether they submit to us or not. If it does, then you're not really loving her in the Lord. You're loving her because you're getting something out of it. And that's not love. That's mutual manipulation. Love is gracious. It's unconditioned upon how women treat us. Verses 1-6 through are addressed to the wives. So what do you do if... How do you respond to an unsubmissive wife? What if you go home and she says, hey, what did you study name in Bible study? And you tell her. And she says, well, I don't agree with that. What do you say? You say, sweetie, that's, that's fine. I mean, I, you know, if, if you agree with what I'm saying today, you could say to her, you know, I, I think it's probably a correct interpretation. But that's okay if you don't believe it because it, it's your business, not mine. You're the one who has to work this out. You're a wife and I'm a husband. What do I know? I can, all I can do is do my best at trying to interpret the Scriptures, but you're the one who has to work it out. And honey, you just tell me how you want to work it out and we'll work it out. And she said, well, I want to be—I want for us to have equal authority in the relationship and I want us to be in mutual submission. Then I would, here's what I would say. I would say, that's not exactly the way I see it in the Scriptures. But you know what? Everybody knows I need help doing my job. So come on, help me. And if you'll help me, be the the head of the home, we'll have a two-headed home, then come on. uh, And we'll share the duties and the obligations of of being leaders and we'll just work it out. And I want you to know now, that's not my view of what the Scripture says. And if I were in your role, I wouldn't do it that way. My role is to love you and to serve you and to lay down my life for you. So I figure if I'm supposed to die for you, I can certainly share leadership with you if that's what you want to do. Now that may sound radical and it may sound... It may sound like a compromise to you. I don't think so, because I think that he's speaking to wives there. He's telling them what to do. He's not telling me what to make them do. Now, I'm the preacher. I'm in a different role. I'm talking about if I'm talking with my wife. If I'm talking to a congregation of women, that's not what I'm going to say. I'm going to fuss at them. That's my job. I'm a professional fusser. But if I'm in in marriage, I think my job is simply to love my wife and lay down my wife for her. And I'll work out whatever she wants to work out. I really think this is where traditional christian men are missing it they're trying to enforce something on their wives that's not even their business this is your wife's business. this is the way she's going to display her beauty it's her tactic to display christ to a watching world and she must do it voluntarily or it's not it's not real it's not love on her part if she doesn't do that so gentlemen i suggest to you you let her read your mail or you let her read her mail and you read your mail Secondly, we must make our wives a submission of joy to them. Focus on our own repentance. Distinguish between principle and preference. So many of the arguments that we get involved with have nothing to do with principle. We try to make them principial. That's called rationalizing. We try to make it appear as though it's principle when it's really preference. And it seems to me that the role of a husband is to give way on preference every time hundred out of a hundred. Let me tell you, the important decisions in my life, how many children we have, when we have them, where we live, what job I take, every one of those. I'm happy for my wife to be the primary decider. As a matter of fact, she was. You know, the only decision I think I ever got to make was which side of the Persian Gulf War we were going to be on. Uh, and that was easy. You know, there's a principle, you know, submit to governing authorities. Or one time when we were brand-new Christians, I came home and and decided that we should begin tithing. And 24 hours later, she was enthusiastic about it. But we were going to do it anyway. It was a matter of principle. But really, everything else that we argue about has to do with preference. And I'm just getting my own pride and my own selfishness in the way. Thirdly, our daughters need to learn true beauty. We've discussed that. It is primarily inward, and it is God-centered. Now, four minutes. Second point, one verse, husbands must love their wives. Why? Or how? First of all, we live with them considerately. Literally what's said here is, live together with them according to knowledge. Live according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of the word, and knowledge of wives, but especially knowledge of the word. What does the word teach us? In the beginning, God created man in his own image. What is man? Male and female He created them. Listen to me. God's image that is on mankind requires both male and female. And sometimes all that men can say about women is something that makes us all laugh. We learn all the jokes about women. That's fine. The differences are funny at times. They have some of the same jokes about us. However, we must go beyond joking And become very serious about this because God has put His imprint on male and female. So therefore, if you only hold in contempt one of the genders, you're holding in contempt something about God. God has attributes that are best displayed in the female world. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is called she in the Scriptures because there's something tender and nurturing I mean, Isaiah even says, as a mother comforts her children, so the Lord our God will comfort you. So if we don't understand women and refuse to understand them, we're refusing to understand something about the imago Dei, the image of God implanted on man. So be very careful when you're dealing with women. Deal with them considerately. Deal with them in knowledge. There's a book I saw one time entitled, What Men Know About Women. You open it up, it's all blank pages. B, treat them with respect. He says, as the weaker partner, and he means here obviously only physically weaker, as co-heirs, treat them as equals. We are to be their defenders, their advocates, their friends, their champions, their encouragers, their servants. If we lay down our lives for them, gentlemen, then we must serve them in every way. And I just find it so often the case that women resent authority because of the way it's exercised not because of the principle of authority itself. Thirdly, protect your prayer life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And if you're out of sorts with your wife, what the Bible clearly says is that your prayer life is hindered. If you've been wondering why you don't seem to have a powerful prayer life, it may have something to do with the way you're treating your wife. So what? We've got two minutes. Number one, our wives should revel in their role because of the way we treat them. When I was converted as a Christian, I remember sometime someone, this was in New England, someone asking the pastor's wife, "Debbie, don't you think that women ought to be equal to men?" And she said, "Why would I want to come down to that level?" She said, "Roger treats me like a queen. He lifts me up and exalts me. I'm I'm the queen of the home." I don't want to come off my throne. Now, the word equal may not have been the best word, but you get the idea. Roger was so serving her and lifting her up, there was no way she wanted to be an egalitarian. She loved the way things were working out in her life. Secondly, we must also continually advocate for gender fairness in civic and church life. So this goes beyond marriage. This teaching here is showing us something about women themselves. And there are gender biases in the workplace, in your workplace perhaps, and in mine. There are gender biases in our churches They go beyond anything that is taught about specific roles, which is very limited in the teaching, in the Scriptures it seems to be about the limited roles for women. By and large, women are to be encouraged in their, their theological development, their leadership development, their teaching abilities. We must be careful what the Scriptures say about limitations. But... We must be sure that we are being as positive in creating fairness and equity as we are defensively in protecting the unique roles of husbands and wives in the Scriptures. And that would include business life, public life, political life, civic life, church life, family life, and friendships. So, gentlemen, send me your emails. Give me your ideas on this text. It obviously is profound. We've only scratched the surface. But here's what I find overall in marriage. The issues in marriages that are struggling rarely have to do, rarely, so rarely I can hardly even remember an example, rarely have to do with a wife not submitting to her husband. The issues in marriage are not issues of authority. The issues in marriage are issues of love and concern and honor and respect and tenderness and communications and intimacy. There's where the issues are. And so often men will flee to a text like this. As a scalded dog looking for an excuse for a marriage that hasn't gone right. My wife just doesn't submit to me. And there it is, First Peter 3. And I want you to know most of the time it's a ruse and an excuse. The issues have to do usually with ourselves. If I can say, I hope I'm not being biased here because I am a man. But usually I find it begins with a man. And usually the men, by God's grace, have the ability to turn this marriage around if they're willing to repent themselves. So yes, indeed, this text is here. I think it's clear. But I think it needs to be put in the context of overall marital life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And no matter what we do to it through the centuries, it's always your word. We always come back to it. It's always there. You're always our teacher, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.